appropriate song this morning because we're going to be talking about the cross, the uniqueness of the cross of Calvary. First scripture we're going to look at is in the book of Luke. I didn't put that on the slides, but you can turn to the book of Luke with me. As we draw closer and closer to Easter, I wanted to take a moment and just look at the uniqueness of the cross of Christ. There are a lot of religions out there, a lot of false religions out there. And all these other religions have something in common. But what sets the religion that we, we follow, the practice that we follow, the biblical examples that we follow, is the, the cross of Calvary. You see, there's death in almost every religion. But there's one risen Savior. It's what makes the cross of, of Christ so unique, what makes it so different than everything else. In Luke chapter number 23, in verse number 44, it says, And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that sight, behold, the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintances and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. This was the final breath that Jesus Christ took upon the cross. If this had been it, he wouldn't be very different than anybody else that had gone to a cross or had gone to a death. The world is full of false prophets. The world is full of false Christs. The world is full of false teachings and false leaders. But the difference between all those is they die and they don't come back again. If we had the time and we had the money, we could go and we could see the place where Muhammad is buried and where the Buddhas are buried. We could go to the place where the leaders of all these different religions that proclaim themselves to be Christ, we could go and see their graves. We can go and see the supposed grave of Christ. They're not even 100% sure if it is his grave or not. We can go and see the grave, but we can't, one thing that's different is it's an empty grave. The others remained in the ground. There was one that rose again. We'll look at three things this morning about this cross. Firstly, the cross of Christ is unique because of its purpose. What's the difference between Jesus' death and Muhammad's death and Buddha's death, Ellen G. White's death, Joseph Smith's death, all the cult leaders? What's the difference between their deaths and his deaths? Jesus died for a reason. They just died, just like we'll die. Assuming the Lord doesn't come back first, each one of us at some point in our time, some point in our life, it's going to be over. As I get older, I, I can see that finish line a little more clearly. Still don't know when it's coming, but it, it's going to be here. When I was young and dumb, it just seemed like I had forever. And as I get closer, I'm like, man, you know, I, I, I didn't leave the house yesterday. And I was studying all day long, and I didn't leave the house. And it was like 9 o'clock at night, and I, I'm like, i got to stop. I can't, I can't even focus on things anymore. I have to stop. And I... At first, I'm thinking, man, I didn't even leave the Tovias. I didn't leave the house. I checked my pedometer. I had 800 steps yesterday. That's mainly me going from my office to the bathroom and back. About 800 times. <laughs> I'm an old man. What can I say? 
I didn't leave the house. I thought, you know, I can't remember a day when I was a young man that I didn't leave the house. First thing I would do as a young man is I'd get up and leave. The best place to be seemed like it was always someplace else, but as things get, get shorter, it seems like I have to be a little more focused with my time, a little more diligent with my time. The Bible calls it redeeming the time. And I remember studying those verses when I was younger, and it just didn't, it's like, redeem the time. We've got all kinds of time. But we really don't. We're all going to die. The difference between Jesus' death is he died for a reason. The crucifixion of Christ is unique because of its purpose, which is to save us from the effects of sin. You see, there's a problem. We see that problem in Romans 3.23. That problem in Romans 3.23 says that all sin and come short of the glory of God. That's a great verse because it's an all-encompassing verse. We don't have to wonder whether or not we're included in that verse or not. We don't have to wonder whether or not it means about us because when the Bible says all, what does it mean? It means all. Does that mean you and you and you and you? It means all of us. You know, there's some Bible verses and there's, you know, we, have to, we, we pull them apart. We have to look back and say, okay, who exactly is God talking to here? Because some verses he's talking specifically to a specific prophet or to a specific group of people, maybe the Israelites. And sometimes we have to say, okay, even though this isn't specifically for me, the teaching here is something that I can apply in my life. There's still value here, but it's important that I know who's speaking and who's speaking to. Here we know who's speaking. The Holy Spirit is, is speaking. And he's saying, as pen goes to paper, or quill to papyrus, as he's speaking here, he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's all-encompassing. We don't have to sit and have you know, delegations tell us, you know, and study groups tell us, who, who is he talking to here? He's talking to me. He's talking to every single one of us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's a, you know, a lot of people, they, they debate whether or not the, the original sin from Adam, that sinful blow that comes in us, does that condemn us? It does, but people get all hung up on that and say, well, why am I condemned by something that somebody else did? You don't have to worry about that because even if we took that away, you're still condemned because of what you did. Because all have sinned. There's none of us that haven't sinned. So we, we relegate ourselves to the position where instead of saying, well, I'm not a sinner, we relegate, well, I'm not as big of a sinner as he is. Right? I watch the news in the morning. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not bad as that guy. I, I look for things on the news like, hey, look, Dean got arrested again. And, and I, I see different things in the news and I'm like, yeah, I'm not as bad as that guy. A guy ran into a motorcycle and, and hit a woman and a man. And he just takes off. And I'm sitting there, I'm watching the news, and, and I hear myself muttering, idiot? Well, I don't even know this guy. But he left the scene of an accident. What an idiot. And, and you know, just things like that. You know, we, we see it, I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, that's a bad guy. Look what he did. He hurt that woman and just took off. I would never do something like that. I wouldn't have hit her to start with. And if I did accidentally hit her, I wouldn't have taken off. Because I'm a good person, right? No, I'm a sinner. And we delude ourselves into thinking that, hey, we're pretty good. We're not as bad as the other guy. Or we're not as bad as we used to be. And we delude ourselves into thinking we're pretty good. And then this verse comes and slaps us in the face and says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. doesn't matter how bad you are. Big sin, little sin, it's all sin. We've all come short. This is a problem. God didn't create us this way. God created the world perfect and sinless. We, as mankind, chose to bring sin into the world. So, well, Satan brought it. No, Satan tempted us. And we jumped at it. 
Just like every single generation and every single person has done since then, as soon as Satan tempts us a little bit, we jump at it. We jump at the sin. And we justify it. We justify it and try and make it sound like it's something better than what it was. Long before I was a pastor, I used to work in, in investigations with, with different retail, retail companies. And one of the things that I was very good at was employee theft. I could investigate and catch employees that were stealing. And then when we would sit down with them, we would try and get them to tell us what was going on. I remember one time there was a pharmacy up in, in Orlando, and the pharmacist was stealing from the company. And so we contacted, we had to contact the DEA anytime the pharmacist was involved. And the DEA shows up, and he's like, well, I'm going to go in, and I'm going to interview him. And I said, well, let me talk to him first. He's like, why? I said, because I don't have to Mirandize him. I'm a private citizen. You're law enforcement. He's like, well, he's not going to tell you anything. They never tell us anything. We just have to go with the evidence. I'm like, let me talk to him first. And I start talking to the guy. And I know that my, the number one thing I need to do if, if I'm going to get him to tell me what he did is I have to help him rationalize in his mind that what he did wasn't really that bad. And you start talking to him. And you help him rationalize that sin, that theft. A lot of pressure being a pharmacist. It's, it's a tough job. You know, it's not just the pressures here, it's the pressures from home and people are demanding things of you and expecting things of you and it's overwhelming. And he's like nodding the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that why you were taking the drugs? Yeah, I, I, had, to, I had to do that so that I could, I could continue to work. And then when I'd get home, I couldn't sleep, so I'd have to take more drugs at night so I'd go to sleep. And in the morning, I couldn't wake up, so I'd have to take more drugs in the morning so I could wake up. And he was basically self-medicated 24 hours a day, justified in his own mind. This is what I have to do to take care of my family. This is what I have to do to do the job. You write that down? The DEA loved me. The problem is, no matter how we rationalize it, it's still wrong. You know what happened? He still went to jail. Because there is no good reason. Sin is sin. And we can rationalize it all day long. Well, I can't go to church today because i got to work. I got to take care of my family. We rationalize it. We rationalize, you know, I, I can't, I can't, uh, whatever it may be, I can't go talk to that person because I'm afraid if I, if I talk to them about Christ, I'm going to offend them, then I'm never going to have the opportunity to tell them about Christ. I don't know where that kind of circular logic comes from. Because if you never tell them, you never offend them, but you never tell them. And over and over again, we say, well, you know what? I, I'm going I'm to cheat on my taxes because I can use that money to, to put a little bit more food on the table and I can put a little more gas in the tank. And it's, it's not my fault the gas prices are so high. That, that's Joe Biden's fault. So I'm going to rip them off on my taxes. That way it justifies what he did. And I'm, I'm okay. It's still wrong. And we rationalize and we justify. And the problem is we're all sinners. We've all come short of the glory of God. And God knows this. He's not, this isn't lost on him. His intention for his creation was for us to be bonded together, for us to be in unity with him, to us have, to have perfect conversation with him. In the Garden of Eden before sin came in, it says that he would come in the cool of the day and he would walk with Adam and Eve. Walk with them. Physically. They didn't have any sin. Today we can't stand before God because we're standing before God with our sin, we become an affront and we, we, sin can't stand before God. That's why we had to put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. William Somerset Wigam once said, if I wrote down every thought I have ever thought and every deed I have ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. 
Can you imagine? What if when you came in the door, we had a machine? Show us everything Doris has done in her life. Woo! I know, right? Can you imagine? And we get a printout. Woo! Did you see this? This Doris. Woo! And we get that printout. And we see all the bad things. Can you imagine? Would you want anybody to know that? Think about it for a minute. What if everybody knew your every thought? What if your husband and wife knew your every thought? What if your kids knew your every thought? Or your parents? Or the pastor? What if they knew everything? They would think you're a monster of depravity. And we are. And in comparison to what we're supposed to be, we are. We're depraved monsters. What would people call you? If they knew everything that you've done and everything you've thought about doing. Fortunately, there's a solution. God didn't just look down and say, okay, I made everything perfect and man messed it up, so the heck with them. Send them all to hell. We'll start over again. There's some people that believe that, by the way, that they think that this is like the second, third, fourth, that God is just trying to get it right and he's just going to keep destroying the earth until he gets it right. He loves us too much for that. Loves us way too much for that. Thankfully, he loves us too much for that. In John 3.16, probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. If you haven't memorized this verse, this is where you start. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you got a good version of the Bible, that word begotten's in there. That word's not there, you don't have a good version. Because if you don't have that, it'll say something like, his one and only Son. The problem with that is, I'm a son of God. I can't die for your sins. John chapter 1 told me, gave me the power to become a son of God. So God has many sons. He has one begotten son. In essence, that, that, that word begotten means is it means they, they share the same essence. In our sense, it would be they share DNA, but God doesn't have DNA. He has one begotten son. And he loved us so much that he gave his son his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We have a solution. We don't have to die as monsters of depravity. We don't have to live as monsters of depravity. We have the ability to be saved. We have the ability to have our sins washed away. This is something that the cross of Christ does that nothing else in the world does. No other death does this. No other death comes close to this. No other... No, no other even as a semblance comes even an inkling close to being able to pay for my sins, except for the cross of Jesus Christ. It's what makes it unique. It's what makes it stand alone. It's why Easter is so important. Easter is so important because we recognize on that resurrection Sunday what actually took place. That this man, this Jesus Christ died, it turns out he wasn't just a man. He was God incarnate. And his death meant something. And we focus upon the resurrection, but the reality of it is, Jesus Christ dying, that paid for your sins. Even if he hadn't walked out of the grave, he paid for your sins. Walking out of the grave proves that he paid for your sins. It proves that he had the power over death. It proves that he had the power over sin. 
that he wasn't just like all the others. All the others that came before. All the others that came after. The cross of Christ is unique because it destroys pride. It destroys our pride. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. At the heart of every faith, doesn't matter what it is, every faith except for Christianity, they are all based upon what can I do to be saved. How many doors can I knock on? How much money can I give? How many rites can I perform? How many sacraments can I perform? And I have to do all these things in order to be saved. Some of you remember Roger Jones. few of you. He was the associate pastor here many years ago before he passed away. I remember him telling the story. He was at the, the Wendy's in town here. And he's at Wendy's and he's getting his food and he looks over and there's two Catholic priests sitting there and they're, they're eating their lunch. And so he goes over to the Catholic priest. He says, if you can guarantee me heaven, I'll, I'll become a Catholic today. And they, well, we, we, you know, we can't guarantee you heaven. Well, just tell me what I got to do. What, 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 what has to be done? That, uh, you know, that, well, you have to do this. You have to do this. And the other one chimes in. Well, don't forget about this. And you got to do this. And at the end, he says, well, you guys don't even know how to get to heaven. How am I supposed to trust you? You're not even sure if you're going. They, were, they started having a little argument about what was important and what wasn't important to get into heaven. He told them, I'm going to heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Not because of church membership. Not because of water that was poured on my head. Not because I, I took a class. But because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. Preaching the cross is foolishness. Those that don't know Jesus Christ, they, they read this and like, well, this is just, this is foolishness. They're blinded. They're blinded. And they have this pride where they have to go and they have to, to witness to a certain number of people. Or they have to, to keep certain pillars of the faith or, or they have all these different things. In the, but it all boils down to one thing. What can I do to reach God? This is Baal worship, by the way. Baal worship that we see all through the Old Testament that's the, the heart of Baal worship is what can I do to be saved? I'm working on a sermon about Baal worship, by the way, because right now in, in the United States, we're a, a, a nation of Baal worshipers. We, we may call it something different, but we'll talk about that at another time. Something for you to go research and look at Baal worship. I'll bet you when you do, you start to see the similarities between what's happening, what happened in the Old Testament and what's happening in the United States right now. Bell worship is, what can I do? What can I do to reach God? Started all the way back at the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, I'm going to reach God. I'm going to build a tower so high that I'm going to reach into heaven. I think God's got to talk to me, right? That, that, that wisdom is right up there with, well, if I can climb over the fence at the White House, the president's got to talk to me. No, you're going to get bit by a dog and tased. Possibly shot. One thing is not going to happen. You are not going to see the president ever in your entire life. Doesn't matter who the president is. You're never going to see him. Because because we can't we can't approach the president on our terms. And even though God has much more access than the president does, we can't approach the president on our terms to build a tower to reach him. 
That's the same thing. That's a works-based religion. What can I do to reach God? It's all built upon pride. It's all built upon self. Am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Am I diligent enough? Can I do these things? And it's not about that. It's about the cross. It's about what Jesus Christ has already done, not what I can do. If it was up to me, I wouldn't be going to heaven. We can delude ourselves and think we, can, we will. I know I'm not good enough. I know I'm not good enough, and I know there's, I can't do enough good to get there. And I don't know anybody that can, except for Jesus. Been there, come back, bought the T-shirt. Why would I trust anything else? I know my failures. I know my limitations. I know my shortcomings. I'm lucky I get out of bed every day, much less try to make it to heaven. That's a long way. Fortunately, we have the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ did all the heavy lifting. He did all the work. I don't have to worry about my pride. I don't have to worry about my vanity. I don't have to worry about the, the, the cross becoming a stumbling block, which is what it becomes. The cross becomes a stumbling block for everybody else because it gets in their way of their own good works. I rely upon the cross, the blood that was shed there. James 4, 6 says, But he, he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. You see, it's not, it's not bad enough that the, the pride doesn't work and the self-pride doesn't work. It's not bad enough that it just doesn't work, but the pride causes God to actively resist us. Think about that for a minute. We're trying to work our way into heaven, something we can never do. And it's not like God's just sitting over there saying, you're just wasting your time. God actively resists the proud. In contrast, we have the Christian God who provides salvation for all of us, free of charge, because it's already been paid for. There's no catch. You'll never be holy enough to earn your salvation. It's given freely as a gift. We have to turn from our sins and turn to Jesus Christ. That's it. The world looks at that and says, that sounds too simple. You know, I know that's what the Bible says, but that seems too simple. Can't we, we have to create another, another hoop or something. We have, we have to find a class that people have to go through. Or, or maybe we can sell them some candles and they like the candles, then, then that'll go. But there, there has to be more of a commitment on our part. God says, no, you repent, you turn to Jesus. And Jesus did all the heavy, all the heavy lifting. I'm going to mispronounce this name, but you guys won't know. Well, you will now because I said it was. Toyohiko Kagawa. That was perfect, by the way. <laughs> is a famous Japanese Christian. He's gone on to be with the Lord now. He said that in the cross he found Christianity's greatest uniqueness. He said, I'm grateful for Shinto, for Confucianism, and for Buddhism. I owe much to these faiths. Yet these three faiths utter fail to minister to my heart's deepest need. I was a pilgrim journeying upon a long road that had no turn. I was weary. I was footsore. 
I wandered through a dark and dismal world where tragedies were thick. Buddhism teaches great compassion. But since the beginning of time, who has declared, this is my blood, which is poured out for many under the remission of sin? Think about what he's talking about here. He grew up in a culture that was surrounded by cults. And he was a wise man. He says, you know what? These cults gave me a lot. They taught me compassion. They taught me how to see the world. They taught me all these different things. But you know what? There's one thing they couldn't do. They couldn't save my soul. Only Jesus Christ can do that. What other religious leader has paid penalty for your sin? There's none. Just Jesus. The cross of Christ is unique because it reveals God's passion. 1 John chapter number 4, verse number 9. 1 John chapter number 4, verse number 9 says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son, there's that word again, unto the world, that we may live through him. That word manifest, we've talked about that a lot. We're going to keep talking about it because it's so important. That word manifest means to make real, to make true. You know, we can, we can all say things. We can all, you know, we can tell somebody we love them. Somebody can tell us they love us. Today that word is just thrown around so casually, it's, it's embarrassing. People say that all the time, but, but the words don't really mean anything. It's the actions. It's what we do that speaks louder than the words. It's when you get sick and wretched and miserable and that person stands by your side. It's when a better offer comes along. There isn't a better offer, by the way. But Satan will make it look like one. And we say, you know what? No. I love him. Or I love her. There's going to be temptations. Things are going to happen. When love is manifest, when love is real, that's a special thing. You see, God didn't start loving us on the cross of Calvary. God didn't start loving us when Jesus Christ came into the world. God didn't start loving us when the blood was shed. He already loved us. What those things did is they made real his love. So he wasn't just another one saying that he loves you. He loves you enough that he sent his son to die for you. That's pretty manifest, right? That's taking something like love that is so hard to pin down and say, yeah, that's love. That's love. It's not just flirtation. That's not just a, a, a casual passing amorous. That's love. He made it real when he sent his only begotten son to the world. His only begotten son. We see of Jesus Christ on that cross and the torture that he went to getting to the cross. The pain he endured. We see God's love manifest. There's no other reason he would do that. No other reason. He knew the outcome. Islam claims to have a, a God of mercy. Every chapter in the Quran starts with the words, in the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful. But as you read the chapters of the Quran, you realize those are just words. Because the love is never manifest. Matter of fact, the exact opposite. Throughout the words of the Quran, you see a hatred towards the people that follow him. Not a love. 
The all of the Bible and the God of the or the God of the Bible and the all of the Quran are not the same person, no matter what society tells you. Allah may mean it may mean God, a generic form of God. Well, there's lots of gods in the Bible too. We mentioned one, Baal. But you know what? He's not the God. And Allah is not the God. There's a huge difference between all of the Quran and the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible sent his son to die for our sins, to make the ultimate sacrifice. The Allah of the Quran, he said, I don't have a son. He has no son. No sacrifice is made. God of the Bible says, I'll manifest my love by sending my only begotten son to die for you. The Allah of the Quran says, I'll show my mercy when you do exactly what I tell you to do. If you don't, you feel my wrath. That's not mercy, by the way. That's a slave that is beaten when they get out of line. The cross reveals how God feels about you, how much he loves you, how much he cares for you. I want to read a story to you in conclusion. I try to, anytime I read a story, if it's something I'm drawing from someplace else, I try to, to look for the background to make sure it's a true story. I couldn't find anything about this story to say it was true or not true. So keep that in mind. I have no reason to think it's not true. I just couldn't find the justification, the proof that said it was true. So as many years ago, a painter by the name of Steinberg lived in Dusseldorf, Germany. He was searching for a model to portrait. He chose a gypsy girl from the street. Her name was Pepita. It was the first time for her to be invited into an artist's studio. Her amazed eyes rounded here and there and suddenly stopped at the painting of the crucifixion on which Steinberg had been working. Steinberg was promised a large payment from a church that was about to be completed. He had accepted the commission not because of the firm faith of his own, but because he needed the money and the recognition. Who is it? asked Pepita. The Christ, the artist said carelessly. But what are they doing to him? They're crucifying him, he answered, and asked her to stop speaking while he was working. After posing, Pepita, Pepita continued her questions. Once for all, Steinberg explained the facts of Christ's death. One day, both Pepita's portrait and the painting of the crucifixion were finished, and for the last time, Pepita came to the studio. Standing at the masterpiece, she turned to Steinberg and said, You must love him very much, sir, when he has done all that for you. Do you not? Then she was gone. All week, Steinberg heard the question, but could not answer that he came to see that Jesus Christ had died on the cross for Steinberg himself. Papita's words had pierced his heart. All this for you. The painting known as Behold the Man, Echo Homo, was hung in the public gallery in Dusseldorf. Many years later, a nobleman passed through the gallery on his journey. Standing in front of the picture, he read and reread the words at the foot of the frame. All this I did for you. Now what will you do for me? The words arrested him and challenged him to throw his life, fortune, fame at the feet of Jesus. He was Count Zinnendorf, the father of Morvarian mission. Zinzendorf came to the conclusion, I have loved him for a long time, but I have never actually done anything for him. From now on I will do whatever he leads me to do. One artist's work of faith would impact the history of Christianity. Zindorf's ministry and mission would later be the catalyst of the work of John and Charles Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church.
Let that sink in for a minute. Here's a man that just wants a paycheck. So he's making a painting. And the question is put to him. Jesus has done all this for you. What have you done for him? I want to leave you with that question this morning. He's done all this for you. What have you done for him? He sacrificed everything. He died on the cross. Prior to that, he gave up all of his heavenly trappings to walk the earth for 33 years. Most, most of his ministry, he basically was a homeless person, not knowing from day to day where he would lay his head, where the food would come from, but he trusted his father the entire time. He did all that for you. He went to the cross and endured the cross and the thorns and the, and the beatings and the spitting in his face and the scourging. He did all this for you. He died on that cross, hung between two thieves for you. He walked out of the grave, defeating death and sin, ensuring your place in all of eternity with him. He did all that for you. What have you done for him? Last week we gave you ten cards. Some people still have all ten cards. Because this was too much. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just trying to, to help you see the reality of what we've become in this country. The type of Christians that we've become in this country. Where we use church as something and, and God as something that is, if we don't have anything else to do. I'm probably going to lose some friends on Facebook today. Because my post right before church started, I posted, what are you skipping church to worship today? Some people are going to get angered at that. We worship everything and we worship God last in this country. After family, after work, after money, after, you know, there's nothing on TV or there's a game on today. It won't hurt if I miss church once. You got family coming in from out of town. It won't hurt to miss church once. Sun's shining and the beaches are warm. It won't hurt to miss church once. I've got to force them to play golf. It's a new business contact. God understands. It won't hurt to miss church once. We've lost sight of who we are as the church. As the church, we are literally called the bride of Christ. Danny, you're holding your bride's hand. How many times is it okay for her to be unfaithful to you this year? Not at all. Of course not. But yet, our faithfulness to God is... We're his bride. We are the bride. 